Hello and welcome to the 25th episode of Pin Count, the podcast where we go deep into the tech. We're not your normal tech news podcast, but we'll dig into the APIs, look at the tech specs and sweat the details. We're not journalists, we're developers and computer scientists. I'm Douglas Shearer and I'm here with my co-host Ian Wallace. Oh yeah, I've been thinking about our intro. I'm kind of thinking uh, the way my work's been going lately, I should say I'm a a manager and a computer scientist that feels more accurate these days <laughs> a project manager project manager and computer scientist occasional computer scientist yeah i think maybe for future episodes we could start to sort of shorten the intro a little bit freestyle it a bit yeah anyway we've got some follow-up to start with as usual you said something wrong yeah i said something wrong so last week yeah last week the last episode and um, when we're talking about uh Amazon's new instances, especially the C5 instances, I was sort of struggling to get the name of the architecture of the CPUs, the Xeons. Um, I think we went with scalable something, something, which is the sort of name of the... Scalable processor architecture or something, yeah. Yeah, something like that. Um, or scalable performance? Yeah, scalable performance. But what I was actually looking for was the family, the microarchitecture, which is Skylake, so I just wanted to correct that. Is it Skylake EP or Skylake? Uh, I think it's Skylake. For those that don't know the difference, um, the high-end desktop chips had a different, that were lag- kind of lagging a generation behind, had a different sort of nomenclature in the, the naming. Yeah, I think for the, these um, these Xeons, they're actually so different architecturally from the, the Skylakes that were before that were for des- desktop processors that they're just, they're just not the same yeah. thing at all, mostly. Because um, they've got like the AVX512 and they've got the new sort of um, uh, internal cache and um, processor communication architecture going on. Okay, so also in follow-up, um, previously we've talked a bit about Apple's core ML tools and that kind of being their uh, training story, i.e. you train your neural networks elsewhere you can run on your iOS and macOS devices. And uh, the kind of um, big thing came out, we previously also mentioned TensorFlow Lite, not to be confused with TensorFlow Slim, which we've talked about both before. TensorFlow Lite is stripped-down TensorFlow for deploying on mobile devices. And they've announced that they support Core ML now as well. So you can train your TensorFlow Lite models and get them onto Apple devices. Okay, that sounds good. I think that plays into the NVIDIA and uh, Google and other people trying to build up the tool sets and own the tool sets that are, you know, providing models to all the devices. Yeah, I think now, like, if you're doing anything serious machine learning applications, maybe we'll talk about some later for iOS, it would be hard to see beyond a kind of a TensorFlow on Google Cloud deploying to TensorFlow Lite via Core ML. Um, for iOS apps. Yeah. So as a, a quick follow-up to the follow-up, the, the, the version of Skylake that's used in the Skylake Xeons is sort of E E5, whatever they're called, bronze, bronze silver, gold, platinum, that that thing. Um, it's Skylake SP, where the SP is scalable performance, mm-hmm. so we were yeah, half right last time. Yeah, okay. Uh, and related to the TensorFlow Lite Core ML stuff is ONNX, which we've talked about before, which is a neural network exchange format. That's gone V1. Uh, they've released it. It's production ready. Um, it's targeting a lot of the same use cases as actually TensorFlow Lite plus Core ML, but in a way more um, vendor neutral way. So that's kind of what they're going for there. I find it quite exciting, all this space where everything is changing in the, in the hardware space and there's lots of stuff coming, but nothing's quite there yet. So everyone's kind of jostling for position somewhat yeah i think lots of people are trying to see how big the market is what part of it they can get and certainly developer tools is always going to be a huge part of taking something from being almost purely a research thing into like the domain of like everyday sort of um application and consumer facing yeah, you see tesla have announced that they're developing their own ai chips now no i didn't elon must talk no. elon must mentioned it offhand somewhere else but they, they hired uh, one of amd's chip guys a couple of years ago and that, that's what he's been busy doing and this kind of makes sense. I don't know. I think we talked about this ages ago. Anyway, long sort of posited that Apple's advantage in self-driving cars, should they do it, is the fact that they can own the whole stack from hardware to, you know, hardware all the way up, which lets you do some quite special yep. things. Um, 
and that would be Tesla looking for that advantage too. So that doesn't yeah, really surprise yeah, yeah, me. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, anyway, we've got a bit of news because somehow we uh, blended into news. So we've got some... I think you must have added this because I had to go and look it up. Okay, if you looked it up, what is it? So this is Toshiba announcing their next generation of uh, NAND flash or 3D flash memory for s- smartphones yes, and yes. other devices starting in 20. I just thought it was mad how fast this is getting. Nearly a gigabyte a second now we're up to on um, smartphone backing store, which is which is yeah. crazy if you think about it. I mean, it's, this kind of um, plays into like everyone's... Everyone's mobile is their main computer now, right? I mean, for a lot of people, unless yeah, you've got yeah. NVMe flash storage, uh, something with these UFS devices in your mobile, you'll have faster storage on your phone than you will have on your computer. And for anyone that's got modern iPhones, recent iPhones, 7s, 8s, or, or Xs, as I shall call it, it may even be that their phone is faster in every measurable way than the computer that they use every day. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely the case. Um, it was an interesting thing in this they've also got like a new controller that confirms to the universal flash storage standard um they're saying it's um ufs 2.1 but if you look at the specs 2.1 only supports up to 600 megabits per second but they're saying they're getting 900 megabits per second so they're obviously going beyond the spec in that aspect but then meeting the spec in other ways yeah it's interesting to see the write speed is only up 180 that's potentially a bit limiting for video use i think it's it's more than enough for like a phone even record, recording 4K. Um, and certainly, would the read speed get more exercise? I suppose it would for sort of small small sizes of data. Yeah, and some Qualcomm news. I think this is you. This is uh, yeah, so Centrix this was, again, right? Yeah, so Qualcomm Centrique, um 2400 or 2400. Um, they announced it's the world's first 10 nanometer server processor. 10 in scare quotes. And it's kind of... Yeah, yeah, scare quotes. This, this is this is them sort of it's a it's a it's a PR piece because their ten nanometers is different from other people's ten nanometers, and there was lots of discussion in various places that sort of covered the news that you know Intel's ten nanometer is actually a lot smaller than other people's ten nanometer. It just depends how you measure the features and the sort of uh, the lithography. I noticed there's some prime nonsense here in their total cost of ownership, where they're saying in terms of performance per dollar. Their two thousand dollar chip is four times better performance per dollar than Intel's highest performance Skylake, the Intel Xeon Platinum eighty one eighty. So a top end Xeon Platinum is probably ten times the price. But it's like yeah, yeah okay, yeah. performance per dollar, but absolute performance, that thing is getting ruined by Intel. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it yeah, I think it's a really difficult it's a really difficult thing to to actually to say for sure. I mean I kinda doubt the claim as well. Um well, it's like my point is it's be, a carefully chosen claim. Their performance per dollar, but what if it doesn't reach the levels of performance you need, I guess? Yeah, and then it's also performance div- uh, per dollar for the CPU on its own. It's not considered in the whole system. It's got every buzzword in here, but they're not mentioning AI. That, that, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a bin. Yeah, they need yeah, to get on it. Um, okay, also you've dropped in here, this is um, NVIDIA announcing their Titan V. At, uh, they announced it at yeah. NIPS the other day. Um, yep, this is a definitely don't, a surprise. Don't NIPS on Twitter. Um, uh, <laughs> this is we'll put a link yeah. in the show notes. Um, this was like the surprise of Nips last week. No one, no one was expecting this at all. And this is Intel, Intel, Nvidia releasing a video card for desktop PCs and workstations that uses their V100 or is it GV100? Is the actual yeah, chip? Yeah, right. GV100 um, chip, which is the same chip as is in the Tesla V100. It's the only place it's in. There's no Vega chips. So Vega's the next generation architecture beyond the current consumer stuff. So, yeah, so 
Titan Volta. So basically, it's a third of the cost, less than a third of the cost of a V100. Um, it's a tiny bit faster, but you do get less RAM and slower RAM. Quite a piece of kit if you've got 3,000 quid. I'll to notice spend. you dropped some gaming benchmarks in here, which isn't what is targeted at. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's absolutely, at $3,000, it absolutely is not targeted. It, it beats a 1080 Ti by like, Oh, the lowest number in the graphs here is 26% faster. Here it's got in synthetic benchmarks, it's beating a 1080 tie under nitrogen, under liquid nitrogen. Yeah. But um, the crazy thing, the, I think the crazy thing about it, which is kind of uh, lost in the noise a bit, is, yeah, okay, it's probably the fast, fastest card you can stick in a desktop for machine learning, but it gets the full fat um, FP64 double precision performance, which is a one to two ratio, so half the single precision unlike the 1 to 32 ratio that all the GTX cards get. So this is good at double yeah. precision, which is typically used for sort of scientific computing and GPGPU use. It's as good as the Teslas for that. That's incredible. This is by far the yeah. best desktop card you can get for, for double precision work. So anyone who's doing GPU computing in MATLAB or something, you should be getting very excited. I wonder if um, NVIDIA will use this as an opportunity. Like That's where they'll make the break in the platforms now. Like when the 2080 or the 1180 or whatever they call it the, the, the successor to the 1080 comes out will it have the tensor units and will it have the 64 bit sorry 64 floating point precision performance yeah and they've also announced that ngc nvidia gpu cloud which is kind of their container or is it nvidia gpu containers whatever it's their container registry with mostly deep learning based container images sort of pre-made for you so you can quickly deploy your frameworks yep. that's they're, they announced before the Titan V release, they announced it was going to Titan XP. And it was obviously a precursor to this. So they're trying to give you like a software reason to buy a Titan. And yep. it's actually quite considerable. For me, that's actually one of the more appealing things about this compared to using, for example, the 1080 ties I've already got. The fact that I know I can save some time. Yeah, it's that for making your deployment easier. So you can develop something locally and then stick it on someone else's server and just know it. Know it's it's not run. just that. It's when you're experimenting with state-of-the-art stuff, you'll be like, oh, this one's using Keras in one particular version. This thing's using PyTorch. This thing is on TensorFlow, et cetera, et cetera. And then you, you end up like jockeying all these different versions of the frameworks and things. And to be able to quickly spin up a pre-made container, that is, that's like a huge time-saving for me when yeah. you're at the poking yeah. around stage so like it could pay for itself in time savings alone just on that quite quickly yeah it might also help with like people sharing the results where instead of saying oh, i use this version of this and this version of that they can go look i use this standard container you can get from a video over here so that's that's quite nice um and i also noticed that in the pre-release of the the jetpack for the jetsons the embedded chips they're now supporting docker in the kernel so that makes me think the the story is obviously train on your Titan, train your big data on Tesla in the cloud, and then uh, deploy your AI to the edge on your Jetson, all all with the same containers. Do- Docker and um, AI together is like a buzzword dream. You just need to get the blockchain in there. Go and mirror those containers <laughs> somehow? I don't know. Um, back again with our previous kind of show structure, I think, if you want to um, quickly summarise that. Um, so, yeah, um, last time we had a topic, and the idea is that one of us does a little bit of research on the topic, and the other person asks the first person some questions about it, and hopefully we get some interesting discussion out of it. Yeah, and we're focused on making some predictions, so near term and long, sort of three to six months, longer term, six months to two years out, and kind of evidence-based. It was you doing um, networking stuff last week, 
so or last time so today i'm going to go in with computational photography as um thing to talk about so i thought i'd start by saying what is computational photography and i was trying to think of the, the simplest uh, way of putting this it's like i would say it's when you take a photo and it's got made up pixels in it yeah that's fair enough you're not just recording what what light went through the lens and hit the sensor you're in some way modifying that to make a a better image be that subjectively or objectively yeah I'll, I'll... A lot of it is about replicating the features and effects of like higher end photography hardware and sort of lower end smaller hardware such as you might find on a phone. Yeah, so I thought some examples for this. Previously, we've talked about um, Google doing long exposure on smartphones by combining images. We had that uh, Google Google blog post in there about that in a previous episode, which we yep. can dig up. Google in general, Google Research have been absolutely smashing it with their blogging lately. Uh, I've got a couple of links in the show notes here. One's on uh, how portrait mode works in the Pixel 2 and the Pixel 2 XL, and uh, another one on how they're improving their street view panoramas. I picked these two in particular. They're both examples of computational imaging. One is using clever processing and a little bit of hardware, I'll admit, I'll admit to get depth effects from a mono lens on the Pixel. And the other one is this really, really clever uh, image processing work to really improve the panoramas they've got street view. And I think... Um, you really get a contrast with with Apple here. If you've read any of Apple's machine learning blogs, which are really light on details and don't really tell you a lot, you know, they, they, they say a lot without saying anything, if you see what I mean. Uh, yeah. Whereas Google, they tell you how it works, they show you examples, they work through some of the maths, they give you references, it's pretty much everything short of the code. It's really, really nicely done. They're also well-written as well. I think they're quite accessible as well. So, I mean, it's hard for me to judge that. This is something I know a fair bit about, but... I think they're really well worth reading, so go and have a look at these. Yeah, certainly the the one you talked about, the uh, um, uh, long exposure stuff, was like, like really interesting. The other one I really enjoyed because you could get the actual app is the Google Photo Scan uh, blog post they had. Um, uh, Google Photo Scan, uh, yeah, am- amazing app for your phone that lets you scan a photograph and it gets rid of reflections and sort of curvature in the picture. Like every time I show that to a, a family member or a, fr- or a friend when they're trying to scan something, they're amazed by it. And then I can point them at the blog post that describes how it works. It's, yeah, pr- it is really accessible because lots of people have come back and said, oh yeah, that was quite sort of enlightening. I mean, I'd even say for both these posts, like you can just look at the pictures and watch the animated GIFs and you'll get the gist of it. Um, yeah. I mean, that's the nice thing about vision work. It's, it's, it's very visual. It's easy to understand. So anyway, so I guess the question is then, what's coming, right? We're We're making predictions here. And I would kind of say anything that's hard now will become real-time or mobile, I guess, in in the future. So any sort of processing we can do now in images that we can't do very quickly or needs a lot of computational power. I mean, that's that's fairly easy to say. It's um, Computers will always get faster. So that's something that's coming. I just thought of another Google one we talked about before. I think we mentioned their Razor stuff before, um, where they're using neural networks to upsample high-resolution images from a low-resolution prior and they've deployed this on Google+. Plus. Do you remember talking about that? Yep. Yeah, I remember talking about this. This is another example. Uh, some great posts on that. So yeah, anything that's hard now, real-time in the future. So, And I also think there's a lot of, um, a lot more application in neural networks, specifically convolutional neural networks, to apply learned information processing to images to make them better in some way. Deliberately quite vague statement, but like, do you remember the app Prisma with the cool sort of neural network style transfer filters that was going around? A year or so ago. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, but you could apply like the style of, say, a Van Gogh painting to like a photograph you'd taken. Yeah, so I can see more of that happening because so Prisma was a bit limited in that it was cloud-based, 
So you had to take a photo, it was uploaded to the cloud, processed on Bank of Tesla somewhere, and then back to you, because style transfer is quite expensive. But there's more neural network hardware coming to phones. There is, you know, they're getting faster all the time, as we mentioned earlier. So I can really see um, more apps like that doing that sort of thing. And that was kind of um, style transfer for artistic impression, if you like. But I can see some other ones. I mean, imagine, I, mean, I don't know if you've seen any of the, um, there's all kinds of crazy um, pixel-to-pixel networks. So one scene's turning day into night and vice versa. Have you seen that work? Well, no. Oh, yeah, I, th- I, think, I think I saw a paper with a day into night. Yeah, yeah, thing. so I'm sure we can find some links to the show notes. But you can imagine things like, uh, you know, the sort of various styles of long exposure shots you get, like nighttime shots with nice streaks from the traffic and... The one that Apple have implemented in the the newest phones, where it's like the the water the water's like streaked as if it's a long yeah, exposure. Yeah, smoothing out water. So I can imagine free app idea if anyone wants to implement it. Someone training a pixel to pixel network or on style transfer like network on long exposures, right? So you can you take a photo that's not a long exposure, but you get a long exposure photo out without having to wait for it, without having to hold the camera steady, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I imagine it would work quite well, and that would be quite cool. Yeah. So um, I guess I'd throw that in my three to six months prediction. It wouldn't surprise me to have someone making an app like that. Yeah, it certainly seems on like consumer devices like the um, um, iPhone ten, and I think on the Pixels as well. The developers can actually get the sort of raw data, or at least, yeah, access the raw data, and then do stuff with that. And if you've also got access to the neural network hardware, then you could yeah, you can easily write apps to do whatever style transfer or sort of effect you. But the kind of nice thing is like gathering training data for that's quite easy because you just take a bunch of long exposure photos, and you also save short frames of the same thing. So. I can see some interesting stuff there another example i guess on the kind of photo side i guess i don't know if you'll allow this as a computational photography example but semantic search of photos so for example the google photos search where you can search for a a, you know bridge or a place and it will look at the image content and then find images with that in them i don't know if you count that as um, computational photography as such but it's yeah, I don't know if it's really computational photography, but it's definitely in the field of sort of looking at the, the data in the photo and inferring things about it and then doing something with it. You know, so you're not creating another image, but you are finding other images. So in a way, it kind of yeah. is. Yeah, a couple of related notes on that. Did you see that as well as face recognition? They've added pet face recognition into it as well? Yeah, I have seen that. It's quite this. fun. So you can like search for all the photos of your dog or your cat or whatever. Yeah, what I really want is software where my dog looks in the right direction. That's that's the one. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's within the realms of a human endeavour, definitely. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned there the soft, how the computational photography is a software understanding what's in the scene. And this is this is a, one of my three to six months predictions, which is better photos through scene understanding. So at the moment, uh, Apple are almost certainly doing this under the hood. They've alluded to it. And that is they're using neural networks to understand the content of the scene and effectively... When you before you've even taken the photo, so that you can set the appropriate camera parameters, you know, set the exposure, set the focus, depth of field, etc., etc. Basically, a better auto mode through neural nets and machine learning to to understand yeah. what makes a good photo, what makes a pleasing composition. And I can see this at the moment. That sort of technology is is happening almost certainly under the hood in high end Apple devices. But as the neural network dedicated hardware to do this in the real time, you need to do it in real time because you need to set the parameters before you take the image, right? Um, as that trickles down, it's in more Snapdragons now, down to lower end. It'll start to appear in more Android phones and so on and so forth. So more people will be implementing this kind of thing or it'll be baked into more phones. So I think that's that's one of my kind of three to six month predictions there. Yeah, that seems like a something that would make the 
the camera even more user friendly because you get a digital modern modern or even like digital cameras that are maybe five or more years older you get the dial with all the different modes on it and i don't mean like manual or auto or whatever the priorities are i mean there's like a, a landscape mode or a you know yeah i mean portrait of people yeah, mode, it's like, yeah, sport mode or yeah whatever. it's like biasing short sort of times for sport versus high depth of field for landscape and so on but even down yeah. to controlling any high dynamic range uh controlling you expose for like if you can segment the scene and understand that you've got a background and a foreground and maybe you want to expose it for the foreground and not worry about the exposure in the background things like this just imagine the best photo you could take if you understood manual mode fully and it's just an ai that does it for you so that's my kind of a near-term prediction it's quite a subtle one though because it might not be trumpeted much as a feature it'll just be a thing that happens yeah, I think it'll just become you know the, almost like a, a standard feature. It's like oh, we've, we've made the scene de- the scene detection better, so your photos are even better every time you take one. And that that's literally like the sentence they're going to say. But I mean, I'm not talking about scene detections, but just scene understanding. So the moment they do face detection, you must have seen used you know cameras or phones where yep. they pick out the faces. But you can imagine them doing much much more than that. Um, you even get some I can't remember if some cameras or some phones where they learn and recognize the faces of members of your family. So it makes you there in focus and damn anyone else in the sh- in the frame. You get that already, but you know, you can imagine that going to your pet, you know, so it, it knows your dog's looking in the right direction. Yeah. And related to scene understanding, I don't know if you saw this, this app that someone put out the other day, kind of as a joke. It's, uh, so they look at the photo you took and then they find another similar professionally token photo that exists elsewhere and give you that instead. Okay. So like the idea is, if you're on holiday taking a photo of a landmark, someone's already taken a better photo of that same landmark. So why not bin yeah, your photo and yeah. find the closest, the closest match <laughs> that is a, a better photo? I thought that was quite a fun idea. It's like take this to its logical conclusion, right? That makes me think. Like, do you think there's at some point there'll be either the technology will just do it? Like, if you've got your Google Photos, like, I mean, what I'm talking about is like keeping the original data from the camera sensor, and then as computers get better and the computational photography gets better they can then be applied to old photos as well as the photos ah, that's a good there. idea yeah I'd, i'll throw that into my six months to two years prediction bin then because this is for example so we talked about google's razor giving you high-res versions of low-res photos how cool would it be if they rolled that out to google photos in general right so i've got photos in my google photos that go back 10 years and they're horrendous resolution they're like one megapixel they look yeah, horrible yeah. in like a modern you know 12 megapixel screen <laughs> imagine if Google just automatically was churning through them with their neural networks and up-resing them. Yeah, that would be good. That'd be pretty sweet. In fact, why someone must have yeah. made that as an app or a service, and I'm throwing out all the app ideas yeah. tonight. So, as a as a as a similar thing, if we go move away from the consumer space a bit and go into the prosumer, perhaps professional photography space, they like to take raw photographs, get the raw photographs off the device, and then process them with some sort of other machine, like a desktop or a laptop or something. Do you see the computational? photography stuff making its way into like so photoshop and lightroom and that sort of thing so yeah okay photoshop definitely so have you seen so this has been people widely describe it as like you hear people talking about um, ai photoshop or photoshop 2.0 or various things like that so i've got i've got a link um link so the first thing i can think of like this is when photoshop announced content aware right okay film, yep. you could just start f- so yeah. i've just dumped a link in the, in the chat there you can look look at it later but this is um nvidia and uc berkeley and this is their pixtapix hd which is taking a semantic map semantic segmentation of a scene so what are the things that are in the scene and generating two megapixel photorealistic images so i mean if you just look at the gif at the top of that link i just sent 
Yeah, yeah. And this is incredible. And if you watch the video, don't do it now, do it later. This is allowing interactive editing of the, well, the latent space, what is here, the semantic map. So you can just draw in, like, some green, and then trees appear that are photorealistic. Or you can change the colour or style of the cars, or you can change everything. I mean, there's a great example there where they take semantic maps out of Grand Theft Auto and generate realistic city scenes from them. And it's not quite computational photography, but when you watch that, you think, oh, wow, what does this mean for the future of video game graphics? It's photorealism, yeah, yeah. right? And there's also, there's also the, the, um, sort of ramifications for, you know, we're in the era of fake news. Like, this makes making fake photographs a lot I easier. Mean, yeah, you need, you need to not say much more on this just now other than go and watch that video, and that's that's afterwards, and then we can... Why we do it in the after show and I can anyway, so that's my kind of up to two years prediction is is more sort of live editing, possibly even editing in real time before you even take the photo to use generative networks to change information about it in the photo. So change the photo. So kind of related to that and how you can change the photo at time of capture. Um, at the moment we're doing portrait modes for either some pretty clever neural network stuff from Google, combined with some special hardware some dual cameras from apple but what will be coming is depth from mono cameras just pure mono cameras where you calculate the depth completely computationally just based on pre-shot camera motion so google used to have this in the pixel you could move the camera in a certain way and it would estimate a depth map and that's kind of doing this but they required a sort of deliberate camera motion because the you know the the processing power and technology is not quite there but it will come that just from the, the shaking that you actually have in the camera, you extract depth information. Yeah, yeah. I think we previously talked, maybe it was, wasn't on the show, but we previously talked about whether you could use the accelerometer in the camera to you know, figure out how the camera moved yeah, while the shot precisely. was being taken and remove the blur That, from but it. also adding depth. Well, yeah, work out a, yeah, work out a depth. Uh, yeah, depth. So I'll put that in kind of one year out. About two years out, I'm kind of going also, kind of ties to that and it also ties to the scene understanding sort of piece I've talked about. And that is what I'm roughly calling physics-based filters. So okay. kind of, to give you an idea of what I'm, the point I'm trying to make here, is where if you understand what's in the scene and the shape of the scene, then you can apply filters or change the scene in interesting ways. So a good example of this is maybe, in fact, the only real example of this to kind of support my point is the lighting modes in portrait photo mode on the new iPhone ten. So okay. they're using information about the shape of faces in it to apply, to shade them and light them differently. As if the physical world was different, you're filtering the photo. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes so, sense. I mean, I guess to some extent Snapchat slightly does this. I'd say their state-of-the-art in this is the Snapchat filters. Yes. Understanding what's in the semantic information in a frame and changing the photo based on it. That's, I mean, Snapchat is yeah. effectively, they are the best in the world at computational photography, I would argue. And what do they use it for? Silly faces. <sighs> Wasted. <laughs> <laughs> some wasted talent there for sure um, and but I, th- I think more of this like re- not just relighting the scene although that will be part of it but maybe changing the shape of the scene more smarter removing things from the scene or you can imagine adding making it rain in a scene and having surfaces get wet or changing the quality of light as well as the direction of light or adding or removing lights things like this yeah yeah that's what I mean by physics based filters and fun more artistic stuff as well and then I guess my kind of final prediction here is, this one's a bit way out, I don't know if I've shared the paper on this with you before, but if not we can find it, is um, automatic removing of occlusion. So oh, this yeah. is like, if you can imagine taking, the example in the paper is taking a photo through a window 
where you're inside a, a lit room and you're looking out at night and you, you get reflections on the glass, removing them automatically, or taking a photo through a chain link fence and automatically removing the chain link, and you can get that. So that this is a little bit like the Google photo scan thing, except you're doing it on a single photograph rather than taking the multiple photographs that you may do in a photo scan. Right, although the way you do it is because the camera is not steady prior and post the moment of capture. So that gives you the missing yep. information, if you like. And then, I mean, this is something that's being done in academia at the moment, but I can imagine, imagine you're taking a photo of an animal at a zoo, you're holding your camera up, and just as you hold the viewfinder there, you see the obstructions that are close to the camera gradually fade away as it moves a bit. And you, you yeah, know, and then you get a nice gooey because you can kind of instinctively wiggle the camera around a bit and rub out if you like the foreground obstruction. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give the user hints as to what's going to help. Yeah. With I mean, imagine just wiggling the, the camera around a bit and the obstructions in the foreground fade away to nothing, and you're left with a nice sharp image of what's behind. That yeah. is definitely coming. Maybe they can remove, maybe they can remove fingers from scenes. Yeah, stuff well. like that as well. And that's that's like, um, but the removing occlusion that's it's possible now, so I can definitely see it being deployed in consumer and i guess i kind of finish on a, a wild prediction or i'm going to ask you to make a prediction right so i've just described all this computational photography and i'm mostly talking about phones because that's where the computational power is right yeah but this is all really good features so when do we see the first uh the first ai powered dslr the first dslr with yeah. cnn processing a chip that can run a cnn in real time yeah i was just thinking the same thing myself and if they could they could do software updates to it where they could improve it all the time, even though you're limited by the hardware. Like, um, It's bound to be a thing. Right, so... At, le- at least our consumer cameras. So that, that, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying, when, when's the first deep learning DSLR? What do you reckon? <sighs> two, two, three years, maybe? That long? You think it's that long? I don't know. The camera makers seem to move quite slowly with these things. Um, they're very, very deliberate, and you'll also have this sort of pushback from the users as well, who feel like losing control of things. Yeah, but when you can demonstrate impossible things, impossible things like removing that occlusion, or you know, relighting the scene. Imagine having virtual speed lights, right? Yeah, yeah. I think, and you could add more powerful neural network processors and so on in a, in a larger camera. I say DSLR, probably mirrorless, right? But you get my point. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, so what are we, we seeing? Three years out? Yeah, three years. And it's going to be Sony, I reckon, rather than your Nikon or your Canon. Yeah, I think it's almost definitely going to be Sony rather than anyone else, yeah. All right, so, uh, yeah, I think that's 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 my predictions, right? So it's better photos through scene understanding in the near term. Far term is neural, uh, neural network cameras. Uh, sort of medium-ish term is physics-based filters, depth from camera motion. If you wanted a wild, a wild card, it'd be photon counting cameras, which is depth cameras that count the photons hitting the lens and can get depth from a single camera lens. But that's a bit of a wild card. That it's one. more like five years yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah, it's quite a long way away. Do you have any predictions I've not covered, or do you agree with all of them? No, I think I'd agree with all of them. I mean, the question I asked about like enhancing like older photos, I think that sh- that'll definitely become a thing as well. Because um, people have got huge libraries of photos, and there's no reason that all these... All the um, filtering and understanding shouldn't apply to them as well. Yeah, sure. Okay, so if anyone else has got any ideas on how uh, computational photography is going to change photography in general, then please write to us. Um, you can write to us at wrong on the internet at com. You can find our show notes where we'll put links to all these things we've been talking about. They're online at pincountpodcast.com. I'm on Twitter at the underscore accidental, and you can find Doug at Douglas F. Shearer. You can follow the show if you like at pincountpodcast. 
Okay, I saw something in the after show. What did they see? Oh, yeah. What's this? Something from Ian Goodfellow. What's this? Oh, this is the uh, Gans learning that cat pictures should have text on them from memes. Yeah, so someone had a, a GAN where they were generating cat pictures and some of their input images were actually cat memes that have got this sort of um, macro text image on them. So some of the images generated by the GAN have something that looks sort of like text on the top and bottom of them. It looks so like text as well. It looks like you just can't tell it. So they've got the horizontal flipping because of the data augmentation they've used. So it looks like kind of yep. like mirrored text, but it's not quite. It's really weird. Okay, before you stop recording, in case we're going to cut any of it in, go and look at this. Um, oh, the video. Yeah, I've got it. Oh, it's got a nice um, commentary. Skip to like a minute in. <laughs> Here we go. Whoa. Yeah, I know, right? That's amazing. <laughs> Skip to like the similar button faces if you skip to like about 150. Ah, here we go. Ah, here we go with a mustache. <laughs> and then, um, if you if you jump to like two minutes 13, this is their kind of um, oh, yeah, what a difference their uh, their method makes. If you jump to like uh, 311, yep, it's a- GTA 5 data. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. Wait till it pans theirs in. Yeah, that's... Oh, 